Our second reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. Jesus said, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the ones who, one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, here he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey, when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The word of the Lord. Amen. My name is Dean Miller, and it's my privilege to be here. Uh, we have been, we, your church, and the church that I serve, Church of the Ascension, which meets in Arlington, uh, have been walking through the Gospel of Mark together. So we've been trading pastors back and forth. Johnny has been with us several times. This is my third time with you all. Uh, it has been a gift to be with you. It has been a blessing to my church to know you've been going through this, as we have. They've been really loved having Johnny come in and out. They know and love Johnny. And I've known and loved you guys for several years, so it's always great for me to be here and see both old and new faces. Um, as we come this morning and look at Mark 13, I want you to take a second and think, what, what uh, crazy things have you ever done for love? Okay, just think for a second. What have I ever done that was crazy for love? Some examples. You might have stayed up all night with a sick child. If it wasn't your child and you didn't love him, you wouldn't have you might have been kind to a sibling or to a roommate that didn't deserve it. Been nice to a brother or sister. 
giving them the first shot of the biggest scoop of ice cream or something like that. You might have written a song for your spouse or a poem, something back like the, when you're dating or I know the men in this church are very romantic, maybe in the last couple weeks you did that. Well, one of those laughs is a little too loud. When I think of this question, what comes back to me, one of the crazier things is to, when my wife and I are about to get married, we had both finished grad school and coming out of grad school and seminary, we did not have a lot of money, but I wanted to have an engagement, not just an engagement ring, but wedding rings, right? So um, I had have a friend who <clears throat> owns a, a company in Austin, Texas, where we were, that provides the best fertilizer for Home Depot and Lowe's throughout the Austin area. It's a very entrepreneurial guy. He has a lot of separate businesses, but one of them was fertilizer. And the way he got this fertilizer is there's a horse track outside of Austin that just broken down podunk horses run in. But whether you're a, a secretary kind of horse or a podunk horse, you produce a lot of fertilizer potential. And so what he would do is get all the horse manure from this track on his big property outside of Austin and, and grow his fertilizer. And I don't know if you know this, but the way you produce great fertilizer is you take that horse manure and you put it in a pile here. And then a few days or weeks later, you move it to a pile here. And then a few days, days and weeks later, you move it to a pile here, literally inches away. But so to help raise money, to do something crazy for love, to buy my wife a wedding ring, I would drive a front end loader into a 15 foot pile of horse manure, scoop it up, move it over about two feet, drop it, drive it back in a pile, just keep moving piles of horse manure around this guy's property. It's just really great fertilizer. Crazy things for love. Again, we're in this series on Mark. And in this chapter, Marianne so graciously read all these verses I asked her to read this week. You see this some very strange verses. If you've been walking with us through Mark, you know that we are, have turned our face towards the cross. We are driving, this last third of the whole book is driving towards the cross. First half of Mark, all about Jesus being the king, showing us he's the long-waited-for king come to redeem Jew and Gentile restore us to relationship with God, ourselves, and each other. The second half of the book is how the king and his kingdom are going to come, and that's going to be in this very strange and unusual way. The king is not coming in with an army. He is not dropping, dropping bombs. He is coming in to die on the cross. We're in these final chapters that are all taking place during Passover. And in the midst of this, driving narrative, we get this chapter this morning, these strange verses. I don't know if many of you have, have been reading along. I hope some of you have as we've been through Mark. But if you have a, a, an old school red letter Bible that shows you the words of Jesus in a Bible, this chapter is almost all read. And as I started to read it to prepare to preach, I thought, you know, when Johnny and I laid out who was preaching on what, it would have been a good idea for me to look at Mark 13 before I was like, yeah, I'll take that chapter and that chapter. Don't worry about it. Because this is an odd chapter. In some ways, it feels like a, a bit of a Mark and Rabbit trail. Why is Mark including these very dire words of Jesus? What is going on here? Again, this chapter can seem a bit like an anomaly. But these verses remind us of the deep seriousness of what our king is coming to do and why it's important this kingdom is coming. And they give us a window into how we're to do crazy things for love for the king. I want to give a brief overview of the chapter, what's happening, and then look at two major things. The two events really being described in this chapter. 
You know, if, if you start it from the beginning, this verse begins with a group of Jesus' disciples, they're not named yet, are leaving the temple. Remember, Jesus is in Jerusalem for Passover. Jesus, in the book of Mark, has not been in Jerusalem yet. In the other Gospels, he has been several times. But in Mark, you waited till this last couple chapters before Jesus came to Jerusalem. I said to my church, it's kind of like Luke going on the Death Star to fight Darth Vader his dad. You knew that he had to go to the Death Star at some point, and you knew Jesus had to come to Jerusalem at some point. And the disciples leave this beautiful temple structure. The entire city of Jerusalem was really built around, politically, spiritually, physically around this temple. And they are waxing eloquently about Jesus. Look at how beautiful this temple is. Look at the stones. Look at the design. And Jesus says, you know, basically all is going to be destroyed. So Peter, James, John, and Andrew, it's the two sets of brothers on the disciples, pull Jesus' eye and say, hey, can you, it's incredulous to them. And so, of course, they ask the question, when's this going to happen? How is this going to happen? Who's going to tear this down? And Jesus launches into this series of explaining, in essence, two major events. The first climactic event is about the temple itself, and it's news with a warning. It requires a bit of background on Joseph or on Jerusalem and the temple. Joseph, if you can put up that one slide, that's great. Remember, the temple was built first by Solomon in the mid-10th century B.C. on the vision, really, of his dad, David, who was told not to build it because he had blood in his hand. And if you read through the books of Kings and Samuel, you'll see that Solomon spared no expense. Gold, silver, bronze, designers, cedar, years and years and years went into building a structure worthy of the dwelling place of God. The centerpiece of which was going to be the space between the cherubim on the top of the Ark of the Covenant where God dwelt in the center of Israel. This Structure said to Israel, this is who we are. And they were proud. And when they opened it, Solomon sacrificed thousands of animals. And there was rejoicing and rejoicing. Here, finally, is a physical structure for us to come to worship. And they would go there every year, multiple times to worship at multiple feasts. But if you know anything about the history of Israel, you know down through the centuries from 10 B.C., 10th century to 9th century to 8th century B.C., Israel's beginning to be wooed by the gods that surround them and building a little temple structure over here and a little place on the high hills here and a little this and a little of that because as the end of the reading from Micah said, they are prostituting themselves literally and figuratively to other gods. And God sends prophets to warn them, you shouldn't do this. Turn, return, turn, return to me. And they don't. So in 587, Nebuchadnezzar comes in from Babylon after setting up several puppet kings who were foolish enough to push back against Nebuchadnezzar. And he raises the town and he raises Solomon's temple. They take all the gold. They take all the bronze. They take all the elements. Worship all the communion kind of sacramental things that you have here. It'd be like them stripping it out and taking it to Babylon. And it's gone. And there's weeping and gnashing. Until early 500s BC, Cyrus sends people back, Cyrus of Persia, and says, you may rebuild. And so they rebuild a semblance of the temple. Nothing quite like what Solomon had. 
And that temple becomes on and off a centerpiece of grid worship and also a place of prostituted worship. Until 160 B.C. when there's the Maccabean Revolt. And some priests and priestly families dedicated to the worship of Yahweh and carrying swords fight and throw out the Seleucid Empire and take back the temple and reconsecrate it and re-cleanse it and worship is reinstituted in a holy way in Israel in 160 B.C. And that continues until Herod the Great becomes the king in the early first century B.C. and decides to rebuild the temple to his own honor, but also to a bit appease his Jewish people. And he's Jewish as well. So he rebuilds the temple twice as big as Solomon's temple. So Jesus is entering Herod's temple, which is still being rebuilt, even at this time, but is huge. And this is going to be the place where Israel comes to worship. So it's this very important symbol. It's one of the most magnificent structures in the ancient world at this time. And again, it's a powerful source of identity. The high priests rule really the political and spiritual structure of Israel. They're not doing a good job. They're working with the Romans and trying to mitigate rebellion and taxing exorbitantly the people in the temple to buy birds and goats to sacrifice, which is why Jesus overthrows the temple a few chapters before and more. And it's worth remembering the original point of the temple was for relationship with God. Back all the way to Exodus 19. Yahweh says to Israel, you will be a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You will have intimacy with me. And God didn't need a temple for that to happen. But the people wanted and gave, and God said, okay, yes, Solomon, you may build. It's supposed to be, we heard from Jesus earlier in Mark, a house of prayer, a place to talk to God, a place of intimacy. But it's become a symbol of, again, political power, spiritual disruption, and of separation. There's actually, again, now courts for the Gentiles and courts for the Jews. It's a place of hypocrisy. And so they are sent a new temple in the form of the Son of God, Jesus dwelling with them physically. God used to dwell between the cherubim. Now he dwells in the flesh. He's walking in Jerusalem and eating and sweating and entering in on a donkey just a few days before. God has come to dwell with Israel and they are missing it over and over. They've missed the Father's crazy act of love by sending his Son and now they will taste the bitterness of judgment. All the gospel writers write of this lamenting of Jesus about what's about to happen to Jerusalem and the temple. And it's so important to get a little bit of context and understand why Jesus is so burdened for Jerusalem and the, the temple. In just a few years, the Jews will revolt yet again. They'll stop praying for the emperor because they're provoked. Mutual provocation. The Romans will take money out of the temple treasury to pay for things they feel Israel owes them. This is money. Every Jew throughout the ancient world sent money to Israel to pay for the temple and to provide for sacrifices. You could be a Jew in Rome or Philippi or Ephesus and you're sending money in for the temple. There's guerrilla warfare. There's Roman soldiers killed in multiple places in Jerusalem and of course over four years Rome returns and squashes 
this rebellion. In 70 AD, the streets literally run with blood. Titus comes in and he wipes out the temple. Josephus, the historian, the Jewish historian, says that a million people are killed in and around Jerusalem at this time. And 97,000 are enslaved. Jesus has been saying, repent, 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 because God does, in fact, judge. So you can understand why in Luke 19 it says he's weeping over Jerusalem because he knows what's coming. The temple will be destroyed because of how we rebelled for ignoring God. The temple will be destroyed because of how we rebelled for ignoring God. His loving warnings for centuries, his son come to die, we miss it. The son of God in the midst. Jesus is dying because only by his death, a pure, holy man come to die for us. Only by Jesus' death can death be defeated for our relationship with God to be restored. It's a crazy act of love. But the way he dies, at your and my prideful, rebellious hands, Jew and Gentile, is the final commentary on the darkness of our own hearts. It speaks of us, not of Jesus. Have you ever thought that Jesus maybe could have come and offered himself without being killed by us? That the solution still could have happened. Jesus needed to die to save you and me. That could have happened on his own initiative without us putting him on a cross. But because we did it that particular way, it brings about the long forewarned destruction of the temple in Jerusalem again. We destroyed him, the temple, which in turn destroyed the physical temple. Put that next slide up. The coming of the kingdom does not mean the great vindication of Jerusalem, which is what Israel and the leadership assumed would happen when the Messiah came. We will be a physical, political kingdom again. It does not mean the vindication of Jerusalem or the glorification of the temple. Instead, it means the desolation of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and the vindication of Jesus and his kingdom. This is, in fact, the new king and kingdom. See, for centuries, the leadership of Israel, particularly since 160 B.C., has plotted and agonized for the wrong solution because they identified the wrong problem. They saw it as a military problem, a political problem. The problem was Persia and Babylonia or Alexander or the Greeks or the Romans or Augustus, or Pilate, when in fact the real problem is you and me and our pride and our need for repentance before God. The problem is the separation between God and his people as represented by these separate courts in the temple. And they and us are about to miss the solution. In fact, we're gonna kill the solution ourselves. And then we're going to persecute Jesus' followers, if you read the book of Acts, until the temple falls, and then down through history, those of us who call Jesus the king will experience persecution again and again and again. All this is happening because Israel and Rome got it wrong. We got it wrong. 
Here again, some of the words of Michael 1, the Old Testament passage that was read this morning. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. And what is the transgression of Jacob? And what is the high place of Judah? The allusion to the temple. Is it not Jerusalem? For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah and it has reached to the gate of my people into Jerusalem. Picture again what the temple in Jerusalem has meant to God. And then you know better why Jesus would weep and why Mark would include these words in his gospel. Remember, Mark is writing probably between 65 to early 70s AD. And he's writing to people who have probably had to flee to the hills of Judah to save themselves. There's that little line that Marion read at the beginning. Let the reader understand. Many people believe Mark is writing in Rome because he's with Peter. And so he's providing a little bit of cover for himself. Because he's not saying Titus came and Vespasian, his father, sent him. Because he knows that might get him killed. So these verses, again, are a fundamental part of what Mark is trying to do. Here is the king, and here is his kingdom. And he is warning us still to repent and turn, but then also to be strong as his disciples. Mark is trying to teach us who Jesus is and what it means to follow this king. So the first event is the fall of the temple. The second major event Mark is writing about is that this continued persecution and hardship for those of us who follow Jesus. That this kingdom will spread down through the ages and all across the world. But as it spreads, sometimes it's going to be very, very difficult. The temple will fall and there will be difficult times. These are the two major events that Mark is describing and using, quoting Jesus as we go through this chapter. It's a warning. Remember, Peter, James, John, and Andrew have pulled Jesus aside, and they're asking Jesus, how is this going to happen? They can't believe that Herod's temple, twice the size of Solomon's, would ever be destroyed. Peter is warning, excuse me, Jesus is warning those four men what their life will look like. And he's warning us what our life would look like as well. The kingdom spreads slowly and sometimes painfully. Which, of course, begs this question, why does it do that? Or why does Jesus allow that to happen? One, it spreads that way because there's resistance. We read Ephesians this morning. If you read another part of Ephesians 2, you get the description of we fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We live in a fallen world. We are fallen people, though redeemed, Lord willing, then we have an enemy committed to making our lives hard and to providing destruction himself. The devil is all about destruction. We see that earlier in Mark in chapter 5. So it's hard, and Jesus allows it, one, because we live in a fallen world. Two, because we live in a now and not yet reality. Jesus has come once and Jesus will come again, but he has not come again yet when all will be redeemed and made new and cleansed and healed. Which has caused me this week to ask this question again. Jesus, why do you allow that to happen? Why wait? I bet many of you have asked that question. I mentioned before, my wife and I really love this parish. And I was leaving this morning 
we're talking again about some of the unique suffering that people in this room have had and in this church community have had. An undue amount of suffering for the size of the room and people that are here. And she said, you know, this church has really been born out of suffering. You're not that old, a church. Johnny may look it on Sunday morning sometimes, but you're really not. You've had an undue amount of suffering, and if I were you, I would beg that question, why? Why, Jesus? Now, I don't have all the answers for that this morning. I wish I did. I'm committed to when you and I go to Jesus, one of us is going to ask him quickly that question. I'm not sure. I know that everything I see about Jesus begs me to trust him. He's an utterly trustworthy king. I know he loves me and he loves you. And part of the reason he has tarried is it's so that I might know him and that you might. But what I do experience every day is I am in a now and not yet world. And in between those two realities, in between what he is saying on the hill there at the Mount of Olives, that is not an insignificant place for him to be saying this. And to where we sit and stand today, that we have been anointed and blessed and tasked and sent to do crazy things for his love for him too. Even though we will all be hated for Jesus' sake, even though there's persecution here and there's sickness here and there's conflict here, that certainly there is now Jesus, but there's also not yet. There's now, but not yet. Now Jesus, but yet 2,400 Christians were martyred in Nigeria last year. Now Jesus, but yet in Mexico, criminal organizations and drug cartels have begun to target Christians in particular because they know that they are revenue centers for extortion. And because those churches often provide rehab for the drug addicts and alcoholics that these cartels feed on. Now Jesus, but as we say this morning, from 50 to 70,000 people, which is roughly the population of McLean and Vienna, Virginia together that our followers of Jesus are suffering in prison camps in North Korea for crimes as significant as owning a Bible or going to church or sharing their faith. Now Jesus, but cancer. Now Jesus, but fights between spouses. Now Jesus, but temptations of the flesh. Now Jesus, but our sin that still has terrible consequences. As I think of that, I say, yes, weep, Jesus. But not just for Jerusalem. Weep weep for us. Weep, Jesus. Groan, Holy Spirit, and help us, Father, because it is too much. We are sorry. And we need you. Because is that all there is? Is this just a Hunger Games episode? Dystopia? An imaginary place where people lead dehumanized and often fearful lives? Are you and I just living out Maze Runner or Divergent or Hunger Games in our own walk through the week? No. Because what Jesus says in Mark 13 is no. Be awake. That's how one translation says it. Be awake. Don't hunker down and hide. Go and love. Go and live crazy acts of love, just like he did. Go be a witness 
as the disciples were. The reason we have this story is because Peter didn't hear those words on the Mount of Olives and run and hide as a fisherman in Galilee in a boat. He went all over the ancient Near world and he blew it lots of other times. And he died, we believe, in a prison in Rome. Let the here understand. Because Mark doesn't finish here. We're not done with the Gospel of Mark this morning. There's chapter 14 and chapter 15 and chapter 16. They are coming. The most important news in all of history is coming. Do crazy things for love. That's what Jesus is going to do in chapter 14 and 15 and 16. He's going to die. And then he's going to rise again. So be awake. Be on your guard. Love. Love the unlovely and your enemies, even in the minivan on the way home, at work, or in your neighborhood. Love by pushing into this community, which you do so well. Love by saving slaves all around the world and affirming kids who you coach here in the neighborhood. And teach your children and forgive your spouse and work to pass good legislation and claim Jesus is the only way, truth, and life. To bring the message of the king. We could be treated as he was treated. We probably will be treated as he was treated. But do crazy things for love. For him and for our neighbors. Dear Lord, we thank you for the untold millions of men who have taken these words of Mark and not run away, but run to world. We pray for our brothers and sisters throughout the world who suffer this morning in ways we never suffer. Starvation, torture, isolation, prison. We ask you for the courage to suffer for you even this week. For grant us hope and help us know how to be awake for you. In your holy name.
for the weak, there's comfort for the afflicted. We just call on His name. Amen. Uh-huh.